I've never had a, an issue of like thinking I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to outwork you all the time. But again, you know, I keep saying it. But when we spoke a few weeks ago, it's like I've now got to. I've now got to a point where I have to work smarter mm. rather than harder. Mm. I can almost kill myself sometimes with the hours I do, but. You have to work smarter, and that is the key to growing. This is the summit by Fearless Adventures. I'm Dominic McGregor, and every week, my co-founder David Nunes and I will be talking to inspirational leaders about their experiences as they strive towards their summit. Hi, welcome to the summit by Fearless Adventures. My name's Emily Smithers, Investor Relations Director. Today, we're talking to Johnny Marsh, private chef and food influencer, who is followed by thousands of fans on social media for all his food recipes. Welcome, Johnny. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm super excited. Um, you've got an amazing journey, and um, I know you personally, and I saw on Instagram the other day that you were called the, the private chef to the football stars. Um, how did you get into this world of food, and um, what kind of led you to, to this world I guess you're in now? I sort of fell into the football world. I can never really ever imagine becoming a chef for footballers or athletes or anything like that because it was never my background to start with. So I started when I was really young. I was working for free at a place called La Petit Blanc in Manchester, which is one of Raymond Blanc's like small brasserie chains that he had. And, you uh, for free? Worked for free from 14, yeah, Why? to 16. Just wanted to do it. Just wanted to do it. I mean, it turns out actually that they could have paid me, but they just said they couldn't. But uh, <laughs> so I did it for free every weekend. Saturday, Sunday, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Used to get the bus in if my mum couldn't take me or that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it was brilliant. And then one day, Arby uh, popped up and said, you know, do you want to come down for a bit of an experience at Le Manoir, which is this two Michelin star in Oxford? And I was like, I was like, yeah, no, like for sure. Still a little bit like naive to what it actually was and mm. where it was and like the sort of significance of this place within England and like the sort of the food industry. Went down there for two days and then they were like, yeah, you know, we'd love to offer you an apprenticeship, you know, when you finish school and college and stuff like that. Because I wanted to go at 16, but they said you have to do college. It's one of the like one of the rules you take there. Like, say, if you're from a different place other than Oxford and London, you have to do a college, come mm. a bit down a bit uh, uh, later and things. So I went there, joined my apprenticeship, turned out, and then we went from apprentice to commie relatively quickly, which is the sort of next step up and things. What 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 does... Your evening look like when you're working in the restaurant. What you're actually doing? Well, are you you're doing the tomato ketchup for the mayonnaise, or are you actually, you know, well, what you're, you're doing? You're doing sort of everything. So depending on what sort of shift you're on, I mean, I would sort of say I was working from about six, seven a.m. till easily 11, 12 at night with ease, and I was doing that every, every day, every single day. One of the good things about Le Manoir was the fact <laughs> is that we always used to get two days off together. So like you could go at it for five days, and yep. you were guaranteed two different days sorry two days together where you could plan a life and that was one of the big things down there and that's one thing I was worried about moving away from home and having like random Monday or random Saturday off you, you couldn't plan anything and uh, so that was great but yeah my days were, were rough as an apprentice they were tough and you know if you're a minute late you know little cheeky things would get done to you and and then you know you, you you're cleaning a fridge with a, a nail brush and that sort of thing <laughs> just to sort of teach you two minutes is too late sort of thing and um yeah, you're doing a lot of peeling, you're doing a lot of veg stocks, you're doing a lot of sauces, you're doing a lot of prep, and then all of a sudden... Because one of the good things, one of the weird things about the memoir is the actual more experienced person cooks rather than is actually on the path. So, and I absolutely love the way that this is sort of run down there. So when I got onto the section, my first section was hot starters, so that's like the risottos, the pastas, the raviolis, that sort of thing. And 
I was dressing plates. I was plating up and I was thinking, my God, the, the trust they have in me. Little did I know that that's not really the big dog. Like the, the person behind me was the one cooking and producing things and running the section and stuff like that. And when I eventually got on the stove, like you, yeah, you felt like <laughs> you're there. Were you oh doing my that? God, yeah. I'm plowing through risottos and I'm shouting at someone and I'm saying two minutes on this or how long's on this and oh God, I felt there. So what age did you get on the stove? Uh, 18. So 18, so young, you, yeah. you turned up at 14. Turned up at 14. For free, for, for free. And you're now 18 on the stove. Like yeah. In that period, like a lot of young people are not thinking about work or their career. You no. know, they're, they're spending their time, you know, whatever yeah. 14, 18 year olds do. How important do you think it was for you as an individual during those ages to effectively put hard work in? Because that's, you know, I know we've not gone to the whole story, but that's what set you apart, in my opinion, already. Oh, 100%. And it, it gave me that sort of golden ticket to the man. Like, they knew I was keen and they knew I was going to be a good investment because I was doing it for free. Like, I didn't have to be there Saturday, Sundays. And I used to even say to my mates, I used to lie to my mates because I was a little bit embarrassed. The fact is, I was a bit embarrassed to say that I was grafting or I was working and they were like, why are you doing that? Why don't you just play football with us on a Saturday and stuff like that? And it was really odd. Mm. And I always feel, like, even now, I think, why didn't I just say, like, yeah, I've got a job now, I'm 14, I'm doing this in kitchens and stuff like that, but that absolutely set me apart, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I imagine in that environment, in that kitchen, a lot of it is focused on teamwork and working mm-hmm. together. Are there any sort of key skills that you learnt in that moment in time that have helped you in your career moving forward? I think it's a, bit, it's a very, very sort of odd industry is cooking. It's a very odd industry. And yes, it's a team. Like If you have like 10, 12, 15 chefs, everyone is working together. But it is 15 individuals as well. Everybody wants to get to the top and everyone's battling to get to each other's, like, to the top. And, and, it, and it was very much the case at Salem Amwell. But when I was at Le Petit Blanc and I was 14, it was like, it was like dropping a grenade into some, like, into this place because I was 14 and I was keen as mustard. I was like, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. And all the chefs wanted to do was put me in the back and peel potatoes. And I was like, keen, I was like, no, I want to do it, I want to do it. And that, that ruffled more feathers than ever. And it was, that was a very sort of um, eye-opening experience. The fact is that learning exactly how a kitchen's run. And I think that put me in, you know, a great position moving forward. Because if I hadn't done that for the two years of learning, just the sort of, no one respected you. No one respected you. And until I was running a section at 15 on a Saturday, no one really cared I was even there. Like, they would, like, they would sometimes just leave me outside. They'd tell me to come at, like, 8 o'clock and just leave me outside the door till 9 until they rocked up just to sort of teach me a lesson or something yeah god so how then did you kind of get into the world you're in now you know obviously refined your skills mm-hmm. you know how did you get into the world of uh, private chefing and you know the um football industry it was a bit of an odd one actually because a lot of chefs would go say from like go to michelin kitchens and then go up, go up until the 30 30 35 and then say right i'm going to do something myself and I remember the being on the stove and being in the kitchens at the Manoir, nineteen twenty. And I remember thinking, why the hell do I have to wait till I'm thirty? All I do for eighteen hours a day is get shouted at. This isn't fun. Like, yes, you're learning and it's great and it's a fantastic environment to sort of be in in terms of, as you say, like honing skills. Mm. But I remember thinking, why do I have to wait twelve years for this? Like, I'd rather just like live and die on the knife and just like if I go homeless or if I do whatever, fine. Like, I'd ra- I'd much, I'd never regret making a decision like that and then I left there and I decided you know what I'm going to take a couple of months out just to sort of um, refresh because 
even though I was 20, 21, I'd been grafting for seven years, eight years, every single day and trying to get some souls almost burnt out already and I was exhausted and I'd come home and I was like seven stone wet through and I remember my mum saying like you look ill like you look sick you need to eat but like you would go two or three days sometimes just on a pack of starburst or just trying to get you through stuff because there's no breaks and it was yeah it was a you don't try it as you go along you do but <laughs> there's only so much like mushroom and truffle risotto you can eat at once and like it does get, I know it's a real first world problem but I mean it's uh, it's tough like you think oh, yeah it's nice but oh my god like, <laughs> and even to this day the smell of mushrooms it hits a nerve in me it hits a nerve into me where I'm like oh my god like it just turns my stomach a touch and um but yeah, I left there, took a few months out, and then we opened. We actually opened a pop-up restaurant, me and my mates. So I moved in with my friends, and we couldn't pay rent. We couldn't pay rent. And it was my best mate's brother said, why don't you just open a pop-up restaurant? I keep seeing all these things in London. And we were like, oh, nah, I'll leave it. I don't, wanna, you know, I don't fancy it yet. And then um, we decided, well, we needed to pay rent. So that's what decided the, the situation. And we mm-hmm. thought, right, let's open a pop-up restaurant. Let's see what we can do. And we, we charged 15 quid for three courses in Tilsley, where I'm from. And the first event did really, really well, like really well. We got this blogger come in. She's called Denise. She was like a family friend as well. But she's, she was a, she had like a photography website. She did weddings and stuff. And she did like a blog about us, wrote about the evening and things like that. And it went nuts. It went really viral for her. And we were booked up for seven months in advance off one night. And it was, and we were just like, I was like, wow, right, then, well, we've got to do it. So we ended up doing twice a month, and then we moved from Tilsley to Worsley, then Worsley to Audley Edge, and it went from 15 to 30 to 50, and it was just like, this is it, like, this is great. And we were sort of then doing Saturday, Sundays, we were doing roasts, we were doing, like, like the fine dining on Saturdays, the roasts on the Sundays, and we were earning, we were earning good money, it was really nice, and it was sort of like paying rents and paying, like, a little holidays and stuff in that in the year. And then I got approached by a recruiter for yachts. He came up to the pass in Old Liette and he just said, I think you'd be perfect for a super yacht. And I said, I was just like, I was like, no, I'm, I'm okay. I don't fancy it. I want to do this. And he went, they pay you seven grand a month tax free. And I went, I'll give you a call Monday. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, give me a call Monday at 10 if you're free. And he was like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, we're free. And um, yeah, and that was it, basically. I sort of followed... I knew that I had to, at that point, I was always planning, already planning, like, right, I've got this business, I need to buy equipment, I need to do this, I need to rent the unit, as we've spoken before, and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, I need money, that's what I need. And I remember thinking, I can get what I can get in three, four months, that I'm going to spend it, I'm going to have to wait a year for here. And I thought, this is it, I've got to do it. And obviously, it was an incredible experience as well. And any, I guess... Any difference in cooking on a yacht versus cooking? Yeah, the plates moving around here. a little bit. Let me not sway. How was that transition? Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. You know what? But I would. I'd done dinner parties since I was around fourteen or fifteen for people and things. And my first dinner party, actually, weirdly, we got into a car crash. My first dinner party was the guy that fixed it, the garage. And um, from then on, I used to do one a month. So, so I got really sort of passionate about private chefing. And um, so being on the yacht, I thought, you know what, this is going to be great for me. I love it. Very tough. Very, very tough. That, that for me is the hardest seven or eight months I've ever done mm. in kitchens. The hours were horrendously long. And this, do you know when you got like the below deck and stuff like that? It mm. could not be further from the truth. <laughs> like at all. Like 
they make it look like a holiday. It is not. It's like, I got three days off in seven months and it was like brutal hours. He would go out on a night out, he'd come back at three in the morning. I'd only just been to bed at like 12, one and he'd walkie talk me down and say, we want burgers. And you're like, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> you say, yeah, no, you're making burgers. And then you think like it's half four. And then you're looking at your watch and you're thinking, I'm up in an hour. Like, I might as well just stay up. And you end up staying up for days and days in, in advance. But no, it was great in terms of seeing like Italy, France, Spain, Greece, Malta. We, we saw everywhere. Food-wise was incredible. Uh, but in terms of like actual work, workload and kitchen, it was very tough. Yeah. <clears throat> and when you, you know, when you had your restaurant before, you talked about that blog and how it mm -hmm. sort of supercharged the, the growth of that. Looking at what you've gone on to now around social media as well, what do you think about that relationship with, with sort of food and social media and how is it sort of transforming businesses in that space? Oh, it's massive. It's massive. There's a guy in London who was on TikTok and Instagram and now he's got about 10 restaurants. It's unbelievable. Like it can change your life. And I never had it. I never had real Facebook, never really had Instagram, never had Twitter, never had TikTok or anything. And it was Ilkay Gundogan's, one of his best mates said to me, he was like, I think you need to start taking photos of what you're doing and showing people that you cook for like Ilkay and Kevin and things like that. And I was like, nah, no one cares. It turns out a lot of people did care <laughs> <laughs> what I was doing. And then it literally went from there and it was, it was just mad. And I started doing this and one of my mates worked at the BBC and they decided that they were going to do a sort of like a story on people within football. So there was a guy that sold trainers and clothes. Oh, I saw that one, yeah, yeah. And then there was... You were like 16? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, he's a... Hustler, isn't he? Big dog, yeah. And then you've got... Uh, and then there was a guy that painted all the boots. Do you remember that? Yeah. Sort of fad? The guy that did all the haircuts. And then there was me, basically. And the guy says to me, you know, it's not going to be that popular. It'll be... I'm doing this because we're mates, sort of thing. And it ended up doing, like, very I remember that blowing up, yeah, yeah. Blowing up big time. And from there, that's that video for me, I remember taking a step back and thinking, this is, the, this is how I've got to grow the business right now. I've got to take um, sort of control of it. And from that, like, John Terry came in. I had, like, Ben Show on Mason Mount. I had the Stella Group contact me, the agency, which is um, Gareth Bale's agent and stuff like that. And it was just... Nuts, absolutely nuts from then on. When you're, I guess, designing recipes or whatever mm -hmm. it might be for a, a Premier League football star, mm -hmm. how do you cope with that pressure? Because I guess it's very different for making a meal for, you know... Well, I, well I, some, some of us eat pretty well already. <laughs> <laughs> but is there an added layer of pressure around, you know, looking after a sports star, for example, and how um, do you deal with that? I think, yeah, at the start there was because I, was just, I, sort of, I had to crash course when I first started with Kevin. So I started with Kevin De Bruyne and that was the very first player I ever got. How'd you get him? I got him through City. So basically, <clears> I was, when I was working, when I came back from the yachts, I worked for one of my friends at, in Manchester. He mm -hmm. just opened a restaurant. He was going for a star. So it was very, it fitted me and it suited me, me and my style and things. And I decided, well, I was working from about 7am till 10pm for him and then I'd go home and then I'd email hundreds and hundreds of people, whether it be CEOs or vice presidents or just try and get huge companies, the bosses' emails and that sort of thing and see whether or not they wanted, uh, you know, maybe private dining or events and things like that and emailed hundreds and hundreds a day and barely got any emails back. And one of the biggest emails I ever got back was Man City from um, the player liaison officer. And then she rang me and she said, oh, we've got a player that wants Christmas doing. And I was like, yeah, no problem. 
So we did Kevin's Christmas, we did Christmas Eve, like Boxing Day, 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 1st, something like that. I did, I did about five or six days from over the week. And then, but he was very adamant the whole month, whole of December, like just before coming into working for him. Because I first met the family or like the start of December and he was like, we don't want a chef. So as soon as this is done, it's done. I was like, yeah, no problem. Like, you know, this is great, it's great exposure, it's great sort of um, experience for me. I was like, it's not a problem. And then during the week, he was just like, you could just feel him warming to me and I was like, this is great. Like, even if he doesn't use me as his private chef, events, you know, mm. we, we may have an event in a month. And then he was like, at the end, he said, do you want to come and work here? And at that point, I'd never told him that I'd had a, I had a stage, which is like a work experience at Noma Organised, which was one, at that point, I think it was number two or three in the world. And it would, Noma's been, the, was the dream restaurant for me. And that was the one where I, I always said, if I ever got the opportunity to go to Denmark and work there, you could never turn it down. And I remember being like, going home that night and being like, oh, I've got the biggest decision ever to make here. Because he said to me, Kevin was like, oh, do you do meal preps? Because he wasn't interested in having a full-time private chef. He wanted food dropped off. And I said, of course I do meal preps. I do meal preps for everybody. Like, tons of athletes all over the country. Didn't have a penny to run <laughs> at this point. And I remember thinking, I've bluffed him. And I'm going to go home now. I'm going to have to deal with it and sort it out and try and figure something out what makes us different. And you've had the meal, meal preps as well. And this is, the, way, the way we do the meal preps is massively different than whatever you've seen before. It's got that high-end sort of bespoke feel to it. And they loved it. And yeah, I was with them for five years. You know, you, you start, you, I guess you plant the seed and then, you know, Kevin brings so-and-so and it kind of snowballs. Um, how was there a moment in time in that kind of point where you thought, you know, like you said to Kevin, I've got players all over the country, I do it all the time, when actually that came reality and you thought, God, I've actually done it. Yeah. Or, or, or it's going to happen, or it's happening. What, yeah. When was that moment? I met um, David Manasseh, who is one of the owners of Stella Group. So he, he represents about 500 players like Gareth Bale and Jack Grealish and Ben Chilwell, Mason Mount. And I remember him ringing me randomly out the blue and he was Luke Shaw's agent as well and he ri rings me out the blue and um, he was like Johnny when you're next in London and I was like I was like well um, I was like who is this for start like, <laughs> and he was like oh it's my name's David and he was like um, I represent Gareth Bale I was like oh my god and he was like I, I, I was thinking he was coming for Gareth Bale and I'm thinking oh my god like what kind of like exposure have I made it wasn't obviously but he um, he was like when you're next in London he said we need to meet I've got some players for you and I was like oh weirdly I'm in London tomorrow and I was like I wasn't obviously I was like right I've got to go to London I've got to go to London tomorrow and I said but I can only get there between half seven in the morning and eight o'clock in the morning and he was like yeah yeah not a problem I'll meet you there at eight at the Costa opposite right and um, so I had to get up I remember thinking right I've got to be there and back in time to cook for players that night but I remember taking the opportunity and thinking this cannot be missed. Yeah. And I remember having to get up at like four, drive to the train, get the, the earliest train you could possibly get. There was just me on it. And then, and then we went, I went down there, had the meeting, and he was like, oh, what are you doing? I was like, yeah, I've got a couple of meetings. And I went, nah. so I'm just going to take my time just to plan my day now. And he went, and I just got back on the train and went on. <laughs> and then went, went and cooked for Kevin and Ilkai and Luke that night. It was mad. But I remember sitting in that costa thinking, this is crazy. Yeah. This is nuts. God. And I guess I just had a question around when you, you talked about doing all the outreach on social media to try and build that yeah. client base. Obviously, that takes a lot of rejection that you've got to deal with when you said people aren't responding. Yeah. How did you keep a positive mindset and sort of keep going through that period? Very tough. 
the highs are highs and the lows are very low because it's just you and it like it's very tough to not take it personally mm. because if it's if it's a, if I was a massive company and I was sort of like had 50 employees and I was going after someone and they were like no and you'd be like well okay no problem move on but at that point in time for like say the first even now to be fair even now it sort of sometimes can hurt depending on the player and things like that but it was very tough to not take it personally very tough yeah and it's it's tough to separate business and personal when you work with someone for so long mm. so personal like you have keys to the house and or the flat or wherever it is and it's very tough to then all of a sudden not be involved with mm. them and stuff like that but you know as we've said in the past you have to be able to separate personal and business mm. <clears throat> i think it's been an incredible story i think you know the as I said before, the hard work you put in at 14, you know, sacrifices you've made, the long nights, the early mornings, you know, I do believe in the 10,000 hour mm-hmm. law of, you know, if you do something for so long, you become an expert in it. And that seems to be what has got you there and is, is what's going to get you to where you're going to get to. And I have no doubt that um, because you've kind of put that real hard work in, because you've proven you've got the attitude, that, you know, we'll be sat here in a year's time doing a second episode talking about how much closer you are to the summit rather than how much more you still got to go. I hope so because I think I've never had a, an issue of like thinking I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to outwork you all the time. But again, you know, I keep saying it, but when we spoke a few weeks ago, it's like I've now got to, I've now got to a point where I have to work smarter mm. rather than harder. Mm. I can almost kill myself sometimes with the hours I do, but you have to work smarter and that is the key to growing. It's not, it's, you know, as we said, you know, getting a manager in, helping sort different sections of the business and, not having to go home and then think, oh my God, I've got basically another work day mm. before I go to bed. And that's not right. And that's not good enough. And, you know, I've got no doubt that I'll work as hard as I possibly can whenever I can, but yeah, I've got to work smarter now, for sure. I guess, you know, you're in the point now where Private Chef is, is growing, it's, it's churning um, pretty, pretty well. Um, what's the aim of it? What, where, what are you working towards? And where are you kind of on that personal journey to the summit and what you kind of see as that summit? So like, I'm probably like I've watched quite a few of the podcasts, and I'm probably not your like the sort of high high achieving CEO types that you sort of have on because I'm not I'm nowhere near where I want to be. I'm nowhere near yet. And but in terms of like how I see it, I want to I want to commercialize private chef, and I want there to be a way where everyone can feel that they have a private chef who looks after them and sorts them out. Whether it's you know it's the meal preps idea, or whether it's me, or whether it's we have an agency with full of chefs. It's it's a lot of things in the sort of the line, but it's a way of commercialising private chef because I've never really properly seen it, and I would love to be able to bring that to the masses massively. Because mm, if it's something that feels kind of bespoke, in, but yeah, yet it's n- you're not paying the bespoke prices. Yeah, that's yeah. what I want. Making it accessible for everyone. Yeah. 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 Thank you for joining us today, Johnny. Another episode of the Summit Podcast. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And thank you for listening.